0: Thank you guys for being here. I have been thinking this morning, I thought I, w- I would start by sharing a little bit about values and specifically about culture. It's something that I've been hearing a lot. We've been talking about in the fall, kind of as we're going into this next season, uh, kind of what, what the assignment is, what, are the, what does the syllabus look like, and, and thinking culture now is an important part of that discussion but one that is often a little bit hard to wrap our hands around. Um, Culture is a little bit like the water that we swim in. Have you heard that joke that David Foster Wallace, he talks about the two fish that are swimming along and the older fish swimming by says, hey boys, how's the water? And the fish look at each other and go, what's water, right? The, the the culture is this thing that we we find ourselves in and yet so often are unaware of. It's sort of the thing behind the thing. And yet it has this way of shaping us much more than we would realize. Uh, the business guy, management guy, Peter Drucker, would always say that, that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Have you heard that quote? Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Meaning you can have the best strategy, the best intentions, the best plan, and if your culture is off your plans are probably going to fail. That 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 water, that the the temperature of the room, whatever that thing is with culture, ultimately has the last word. It's ultimately the thing that's shaping what's happening there. And so if we're not intentional about culture... Jeez. That's our, yeah, our friends in the motorcycle club that are driving by there. Um, Church by the Sea Motorcycle Club. The... Um, The culture, thinking about that with intentionality is so important. If we miss it, we're kind of on a certain level, not understanding quite the assignment, that when you walk into a place, you feel culture, whether you realize it or not. And so somebody was asking me that, like, Jeff, what would you describe? How's the culture of Church by the Sea? And I was like, well, I don't know, it's kind of this and that. And he said, well, what are your values? And values has been something that I've been thinking quite a bit about. They they kind of keep changing, but off the top of my head I said, I think it's these three things. I think at Church by the Sea, hopefully our values are these. Authenticity, humility, and depth. We want to be a culture that is authentic, a culture that is humble, and a culture that is deep. And those are descriptives, right? I I, would love to say that I embody those things, but the second I do, I've probably lost humility at the very least, if not authenticity, to go along with it. They're these descriptives that almost as soon as you mention them, you've kind of lost them. Who are we? Well, we're just this really authentic group. And you're like, are you? Right? It comes off as almost disingenuous. And the, the idea that these things are, are almost what is instead like holding us in check or like our true north the thing that we're seeking after. And authenticity, it's something, it's an an easy thing to kind of notice or see, but harder to describe or to define. I like the way that Brene Brown puts it. She says, Authenticity is the daily practice of letting go who we think we're supposed to be and embracing who we are. Authenticity is the daily practice of letting go of who we think we're supposed to be and embracing who we are. And I think a lot of times when we come to church, it's hard to be authentic, right? We walk into a culture and think, how am I supposed to behave? How do I sort of put on that front? We've talked about how, you know, like it's so easy. You're coming to church and just fighting in the car and then you get to church and you're like, hi, right? And this idea of, of the inside matching the outside, this is what authenticity is like. And it can be hard. In fact, I think authenticity takes tremendous courage to really see ourselves authentically and then to present ourselves authentically. And this involves kind of like the, the non-airbrushed version of ourselves, doesn't it? Like the, the idea of warts and all. We talk about being, as Patty was saying, a a safe space to heal and a brave space to grow. And you, you realize with both of those things, there's a level of honesty that requires to acknowledge where we're broken and need healing, to acknowledge where we're weak and need to get stronger. So an authentic community is so intertwined with this idea of a humble community. And humility is this. Humility is openness to learning combined with a balanced and accurate assessment of our contributions, including our strengths, imperfections, and opportunities for growth. Humility is openness to new learning combined with a balanced and accurate assessment of our contributions, including our strengths, imperfections, and opportunities for growth. Humility is not insecurity. Insecurity is just another sort of self-obsessive way of being caught up in pride. It's not constant self-deprecation. Somebody goes, oh, you're great. You're like, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. It's an accurate assessment. Understanding, you know, just who we are. I remember I had a professor who would come up and he he said, if anybody compliments you, this is a seminary professor, don't say, oh, no, no, that wasn't me. That was God. Because the truth is, if it was God, it would have been a lot better than that. (laughs) Hey, and I remember thinking, oh, you know, he's got a point. Now, I do like this idea of deferring, deferring glory that is important to us. But it is okay to say thanks. You know, I really tried hard on that with the acknowledgement that like if God really showed up, right, then the ground would shake. So um, we each make a contribution and part of humility is going, oh, I think I am called to this. I think I am good at this. And yet this sort of open handedness, willingness to grow, willingness to be used. And this last one, depth, uh, is the one I probably struggle with the most. It's the hardest one to really get your hands around. I thought wisdom, maybe, curiosity, growth, integrity. If I could just pick one, though, I, I was thinking a descriptive. I probably would go with something like wonder. That the depth has this um, openness and like this this appetite for more. It longs for beauty. It longs to go further in. And I've heard wonder and awe kind of described like this, that wonder inspires the wish to understand. Awe inspires the wish to let shine, to acknowledge, and to unite. When I think about us being the light of the world, it's like this beauty that emanates, this longing to know more, to go further in, And when we find that glory, holding it out for others to see. And we talk about becoming like Christ. It really is an embodying, I think, of these things. There's certainly more values, and and you might add others to the list. But becoming who we are, created to be our authentic selves, living in that place of humility and openness, and going deeper and deeper I love that directionally. It's kind of the opposite even of ambition where we think of like, I just want to level up, right? I just want to keep leveling up. Depth has this idea of going inward, right? In fact, in spiritual formation, we'll sometimes use this term depthing as like, you know, you take anything and turn it into a verb. But this way of going further in, that that what people share so often is kind of there on the surface. And depthing is a way of going underneath that and then underneath that. That we find we, we go beyond the ideas into the deeper matters of the heart. That wisdom is that thing that goes after the depth as opposed to like sky's the limit. And to create a culture like this, I, I think this to me is the culture that was here before I even came. I, I walked in and felt that. And I think the cross to me embodies kind of all three of those values really well. I love the simplicity of it. I think of authenticity and humility and depth is there. And just that beautiful cross. And you walk in and go, oh, part of the culture of this church. I love how it's just there behind us, reminding us of the true beauty, the thing that's drawing us towards more. And as we think about growing in this, it's really this kind of multifaceted growth. I love how Scripture says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. That in all of these spheres, we're called to grow more and more, to love God with our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. And it's funny. Somebody came up to me last week and said, Jeff, I really appreciated that message. I appreciated the intelligence of it. And I was thinking, like, shh. Like, intelligence is kind of a controversial word in the church. We see it sort of as danger, and not to mention the fact that there goes Jeff's humility. Like, gone. But... (laughs) (laughs) But I remember thinking, like, no intelligence to me. I think sometimes we can have a suspicion of that. It's something that I really enjoy about teaching the class that I'm teaching, is that there's a freedom to go, oh, no, 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 intelligence is of such deep value. Intelligence isn't the problem, right? It's what we do with it. It's the way that we handle it. It's our pride, really, that corrupts intelligence. But pride is able to corrupt everything. But I love how Dallas Willard used to say, Jesus was the smartest man who ever lived. But sometimes we had trouble assigning that. We would say he's good, but had trouble really going to this place of intelligence because we see intelligence as almost like a worldliness. When in fact, loving God with our minds means using that intelligence to the very best of our ability. And when you read scripture, you see the intelligence in it. There's no question when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you're like, Jesus is brilliant. The ethics in that are so deep. But I also love this about Paul. Paul was a philosopher and so deep. And so like one of my favorite sermons of Paul's is when in Acts, he's there in Greece and he's standing amongst the intelligentsia there. And he starts preaching and to me does it so brilliantly and something that I feel like really embodies the values that we're talking about here. So I just thought, if it's okay, I want to, I'm not going to deeply unpack all of this, but just want to read Paul's sermon in Athens. And it says, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything that is in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might feel around for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. For we also are His descendants. Therefore, since we are the descendants of God, we ought not to think about the divine nature, that it's like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by human skill and thought. So having overlocked the times of ignorance, God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to repent because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all people by raising him from the dead. Is that brilliant? And this is the thing. I love obviously the content of this, but I so love the approach that Paul comes into Athens and finds a common question. They had set up this altar, like if we've missed something, right? If there's a God out there that we don't know of, here's an altar to him. We don't know your name, but we're going to just write to an unknown God. Like we got you covered. And Paul goes in and sees that and goes, "Oh no, no, no. okay, good question." And here's a little bit more information. That God has revealed himself. And by the way, this is the God in whom we live and move and have our being. And we think Paul's quoting scripture there, but he's actually quoting Greek poetry. Finding this place of common ground, inviting that into the discussion and going, see the overlap here. Inviting them to repent like all of us need to do. And that word there in the Greek, the the word for repentance there is metanoia. It's this invitation to know beyond. It's going, it's bigger, you guys. This question that you're asking is the right question. And here's the answer. And here's how Jesus fulfills that. And I love it because it's so filled, the posture with such respect for them. This is how God has shown himself to us. God who is near us. That to me is culture that Paul is creating there with such gentleness and respect, smart, but so inviting. He offers them, invites them to an opportunity. And here's the deal, that some people are like, that's what I'm looking for. And others turn and they scoff. The Greek word there is is to mock, right? This... This cynical response to what Paul's inviting them to. And Paul, I think he eventually comes to terms with the fact that like this is just going to happen. Just, I think, like Jesus did. Jesus would finish his message and say, Those who have ears, let them hear. That there's a posture of the heart that is required to know beyond, to see through. You have to be listening. You have to be searching. You have to want it. There's also a posture of the heart that is closed, that despises, that mocks, it's cynical. And I think Paul realizes there's no answer to that, that all you can do is invite and then move on. And he goes from there to Corinth and and writes a letter to the Corinthians there. And this was in our lectionary reading on Thursday this week. But I love this passage in 1 Corinthians. You see Paul in all the complexity of this come down sort of to the simplicity of his posture. And he says, For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know that oh, did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign, and Greeks desire wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And it's an interesting thing. Paul is sort of contrasting here the, the wisdom of man versus the revelation of God and interestingly uses these terms of like the wisdom of the world is inferior to the foolishness of God. And I think sometimes we, we make a mistake here in this and assume that that philosophy is somehow wrong and that foolish faith is somehow good. And I don't think that's exactly what he's after here at all. In fact, if you look at this, what is being exposed here, we we see Paul is quoting, actually, from all the way back in the book of Isaiah, a posture of the heart that that prophet was rebuking as well. This idea of destroying the wisdom of the wise and the discernment um, he's thwarting is actually a reference not to people thinking critically. <laughs> it's talking about people who are thinking hypocritically people who say one thing and do another, people that profess one thing and deep down believe something different. So if we backtrack that to Isaiah, we see that the thing that God is exposing here, it says, These people turn toward me with their mouths and honor me with lip service while their heart is distant from me. And their fear of me is just a human command that has been memorized. The wisdom of their wise will perish and the discernment of their discerning will be hidden, doomed to those who hide their deep, their plan deep away from the Lord, whose deeds are in the dark, who say, who sees us? Who knows us? And this posture that I think Paul is exposing here is what he saw there on display in Athens in the mockery. And the truth is this way of thinking can sneak in just about anywhere. that it can take our motives and twist them and turn intentions, even the very best things, towards ourself. And here's the truth. The, The church is not immune to that sort of thing, is it? We live in a day and age where often the motives of the church are being sort of exposed, or we see where the church has at times covered up or hidden faults that we should have just confessed and admitted to. That, that part of being a deep church is being willing to look within and admit when we've been wrong where we've done harm. There, there's a story I love. Donald Miller years ago wrote this book called Blue Like Jazz. And in it, he talked about how he was at Reed, which is this crazy, like um, extreme sort of university, but very bright. And they would have this kind of debaucherous weekend and, this group of Christians put a confessional booth out in the middle of the quad, and everybody didn't know what to do with it. They're walking around going, what what is this, right? Until finally somebody gets up, you know, the nerve and walks in and says like, what am I supposed to do? Confess my sins to you? And the person sitting in the booth said, no, we want to confess our sins to you. And the shift, right the way that this disarmed people to see the church sort of going first and saying, certainly we have those things that need to be changed in us. What a crazy posture. But you see how the culture changes with a position like that, that bit of humility, that bit of authenticity. And David models this, I think, amazingly well when he says, search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. And see, for the church that is going to go deeper into these the humility and authenticity, we have to be willing to go there first. To take and apply that way of thinking into the parts of my own heart that I would prefer to keep hidden. See if there be any wicked way in me. Here's a quick answer to that. There is. In each of us. Things in us that are hurt or broken or need to be fixed, selfishness that exists in there that god 's going let 's pull that out into the light. This is how we grow. I had one this week that i 'm like i 'm going to admit to you and 'm a little embarrassed about but but I was in this time of, of talking through a sort of relational um, difficulty with somebody processing through it, wanting to explain, you know, this is what I meant, and this is how I understood all of that, and and here's where I feel like I'm being misunderstood, and, you know, in conversations like that, I sort of behave as like Jeff's advocate. Like, let me tell you what Jeff meant there, right? Like, I sort of become the lawyer for Jeff that's like, this is where he was at when he said that, and and, and I don't think that's wrong. I think all of us deeply want to be understood, And I think oftentimes so much of the offenses that we create in this world are done unintentionally, right? And so a posture of of some sort of defense is good for the sake of explanation. But all of a sudden there was a third person there who said, you know, Jeff, just make sure you're not turning a matter into an issue. And I thought, oh, for whatever reason, that like hit, like cut really deep. And I thought, oh my gosh, I do that that I take this thing and I see it. This is a real thing. But I all of a sudden go, oh, and here it is, and here it is, and here. And you know what I think is really going on here? And you see how something's shifted in Jeff. I go from somebody that's just observing or paying attention or noticing to somebody who now is interpreting and, if I'm honest, judging. Let me tell you what's really happening. Ah, I see what's going on here. And the truth is, when I do that, especially with any sort of emotion, is I get myself in real trouble. And I was thinking about that, going, Oh, I didn't just do that in this situation, but I do that. And I don't want to do that. And to notice that gives me an opportunity to take responsibility for it and shift behavior around it. That if I can apply that, that will make me a better Leader, that'll make me a better husband, better father. Sorry, Mia. But these kind of things, right? Where you go, little behaviors, that if I'm not careful, I miss it. And see, this idea of reasoning, thinking intelligently, it's, it's looking at ourselves through a critical lens, and it's so important. Loving God with all our minds is utilizing that capacity that we have. And it's not about having a certain IQ, right? Or like being seen as like, oh, I want to be the smart person. I realize with intelligence, some of us have been told when we're young that you know, we're not very smart, or at least our grades seem to to say that. And we can carry a wound around intelligence. But the truth is, it's just not true about you. I didn't share this in the first service, but um, I think one of the... My favorite compliments I've ever received was from a mom who said, you know what my daughter loves about your teaching, Jeff? She says, Jeff talks to me like I'm brilliant. And I think, you are, all of you are, brighter than you realize. But, but it's not about scoring an IQ. In fact, studies are showing that like the higher your IQ, sometimes the, the worse it is at being corrected, because you just get there so fast, and you just always assume you're right. This idea of a sort of thoughtful, reflective posture of the heart, I think, is what's being encouraged. This from um, my friend C.S. Lewis. He says, God is no fonder of intellectual slackers than of any other slackers. If you're thinking of becoming a Christian, I warn you, you're embarking on something which is going to take the whole of you, brains and all, But unfortunately, it works the other way around. Anyone who is honestly trying to be a Christian will soon find his intelligence being sharpened. One of the reasons why it needs no special education to be a Christian is that Christianity is an education itself. And this is what we've signed up for, right? We're walking this road with God. And sure enough, he's going to show up and show you just what you need to see along the way. He's going to invite you into that truth. And while at first it makes us uncomfortable, we I think we start to build up a tolerance for that, maybe even an appetite. Show me, God. Show me where I'm out of line. And that, I I think, is not just a measure of IQ. I love how there's so much conversation happening these days about EQ, about our intelligence or our emotional quotient, right? That it's not just enough to be able to process ideas up here but an awareness to sort of read the room, to understand how we're affecting those around us. And this becomes a big part of our learning and our growth, as it turns out. When we think about culture, we're not just processing through this thing as individuals. We realize we do this as a cohort. We do this collectively. The gift of being a church is, is the way that we can help each other on this road. That it's more than just paying attention to myself internally, but thinking about those who I'm next to. And In our passage for today, which we're finally getting to now, but in Romans 14, Paul addresses this by pushing into a really hot topic issue. Something that he knows is going to make people's skin crawl. Something highly controversial at the time. He talks about eating meat sacrificed to idols which thankfully for us probably falls kind of benign at this point. Not too many of you are worried about this, I'm guessing. But at the time, just like every other time in history, this was the issue. In fact, for James, he couldn't get past this one. For James, eating meat sacrificed to idols, he's like, no way, right? When Paul was like trying to negotiate with him about what do the Gentiles need to do now that they're coming to Christ, James was like, not meat sacrificed to idols, and Paul's like, okay, whatever, cool, right? But then like later goes, all right, I think we can lighten a little bit on this one. But but what he says here to me is all about how we treat each other as we're processing through this stuff, not stepping into that place of judgment. So he says this, I welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions Some believe in eating anything, while the weak eat only vegetables. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain, and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat. For God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall, and they will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Some judge one day to be better than others, while others judge all days to be alike. Let all be fully convinced in their own minds. Those who observe the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. Also those who eat, eat in honor of the Lord, since they give thanks to God, while those who abstain, abstain in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. We do not live to ourselves, and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die... We are the Lord's for to this end, Christ died and lived again. So he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister or you who do? Do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. so then each of us will be accountable to God. Now this story, right, it it probably doesn't really hit so close to home when we think about the issue at stake here. But how many of us have found ourselves on one side or the other of an issue? And we probably don't like to think of ourselves as weaker, right? That's sort of a diminishing sort of role. But I think Paul is meaning it with a sense of sensitivity and the truth is, if we went down and listed all the issues, all of us probably have a certain, a certain issue that we're particularly sensitive to. Something that triggers in us. And we know it, right? Because we sweat, our blood pressure goes up, that, like, get that red film behind our eyes, right? That thing that, tra- that triggers us. And I love how Paul is saying here, be aware, be sensitive to yourself and to others. It's funny, all of us, like, in, depending on which room we're in, probably all land in different places on the spectrums of belief. I remember N.T. Wright saying one time that he thinks it's always interesting when he comes to America because he feels like he's particularly, like, seen as sort of progressive, whereas when he goes back home to England, he's seen as, like, ultra-conservative, and he's like, oh, it's just weird, right? The climate, the whole backdrop changes. But I experienced that in certain circles where I'm like, oh, I'm the conservative one in this room, or I'm the progressive one in this room. How all of us land somewhere on that. And the truth is, this is a strength. We may not see it that way. But I think we live in this world that has so little tolerance of people disagreeing that that we insist on this kind of uniformity of belief. And this may feel like unity, but it's not. It's homogeneity. And how so many groups are, are dividing over these kind of issues. You know what I'm talking about. And it creates a sort of intimacy, right? They, they call this like common enemy intimacy. Like what we all have together is that we all despise the same people. Which feels good for a minute, right? Until you realize that maybe you're the person that's going to get booted Next. There's not a stability in this. There's not a safety in this. And instead, what Paul is talking about is in this environment, the culture that we're to swim in is one of deep compassion towards each other where we're recognizing when all of a sudden I'm reacting with disdain or judgment. And that both of these should be red flags, like a check engine light should go on. The second I hold somebody in some sort of contempt or the second I hold myself as the judge. And Jesus just tells us, don't do that, right? I've said this before. He says, don't do it. You're bad at it. When you judge, right? You just protect yourself, right? You protect your own. <clears> that We don't sit in that place, but we do all sit in a place of judgment, That isn't to say anything goes. It's to say that God is the one. And for us as this cohort, as this classroom, then what do we do? We respond with compassion, with the opportunity to speak truth, but in love, always in love. A chance for us to discuss and talk and even argue and disagree, that all of that can be healthy when it's done with an underlying sense of compassion. The second that disdain comes in or judgment comes in, it's like a cancer to the culture. All the air gets sucked out of the room. And I think about this for us as we talk about vision and going forward. What is it to feel like here? Safe space to heal and a brave space to grow. Doesn't mean we don't talk about things. It means we talk about things with a sense of humility authenticity and depth. That we're willing to have our own opinions changed, our own lives examined. For God to call out those things in us that need healing, that we welcome truth above being right. That the texture of this is the texture that James is going to describe as wisdom from above. And I don't think it's said any better than this. In James 3, he says, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I go, oh, that's what I want. I want that inwardly in my own heart, that non-anxious presence, that sense of gentleness, reasonableness but mercy impartial and sincere i i want to be that person which requires listening requires paying attention i've said this before but I, I had a professor that said if you're objective on anything that means you could state the other person's point to their satisfaction right i've just listened i've sought to understand And I pray this for us. I pray that we would be a culture like this. I feel like we are, and I feel like we're growing in this. But where we're not, I pray that God would convict us, deepen us, humble us, pull us into the truth, correct us, judge us even where we need it. That we would become more and more a people that embody the heart of Christ, the mind of Christ, and the love of Christ you know I'm going to give you a few assignments here as we close. So some questions for those who would like to go deeper, to depth this more. The first one on authenticity is just how comfortable am I being myself? How willing am I to share from a place of authenticity and vulnerability? It takes courage. It takes courage to admit those questions or, or to be seen for who we are are we becoming a place where it's safe to be authentic? Second, how often am I thoughtfully listening to different opinions or views? What causes me to become defensive, anxious, angry? We're all human. We all have those triggers. We all react at times. But do we notice, do we catch ourselves? Do we allow ourselves to pull back into that place of patience, kindness, Lastly, how am I, how open am I to admitting where I'm wrong? Am I willing to take responsibility for past mistakes? Do I seek ways to adjust my behavior to keep from making the same mistakes over and over again? And responsibility, that's part of humility to not just own it. But to let that thing change my actions, to not just recognize what I've done wrong in the past, but to figure out how I cannot do that same thing in the future. This is the way that we embrace truth and let it change us. To take that deep within us. Extra credit. I thought, you know, it might be fun for each of us to write down what are those things that we find as our own value that each of you bring those things with you. It's part of your gift to us as a church body. One of the greatest gifts is getting to go through life with you. And those values that you hold to and cherish are part of what you bring to us. So we're grateful for you being here. Would you stand with me? Another one of our values is food. So, and coffee. Maybe in reverse order, but... um, but we've got food outside. We, because we're celebrating Cuba and the work that God is doing through Bruce and our missions committee, we've got a um, Cuban-themed meal for you afterwards from like Porto's, which is like fantastic. So you guys are in for a treat. But um, let me pray this for us, a blessing for you as you go. May God bless you and keep you and make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. God bless you.